Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow. I'm the pastor of Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of God's Word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. your Bibles, John chapter 5 is where we're going to be again. And before we get in here, I kind of want to give you a bit of an illustration before we dive into the text. And it's an illustration from my life. When I was um, 16 years old, I was playing tennis and my tennis coach walked up to me and told me something. I don't even remember what it was, um, but it would have been right for me to be obedient to it. Yet immediately as my tennis coach gave me that direction, my father walked up and gave me something completely different. Who did I obey? Your dad right? Why? Because he is the true authority. Um, What we're looking at this morning is something very similar. There are people that are giving these types of commands, they're giving this type of instruction, and then Jesus speaks. And here's the deal, we always bow to the highest authority. It's not only the way that our basic life works, frankly, it's the way our judicial system works. There is a high court, and when the high court rules, essentially it has ruled for all the other courts. And this morning what we're looking at is the ruling of Jesus about the Sabbath. And so as we look at this passage, what I'd like to do is two things. First, I'd like to give you somewhat of a biblical theology of what the Sabbath is. Why is it that we gather on Sunday? Why is it that God has set aside a particular day for us to worship on, for us to celebrate Christ together on? So we'll deal with that. And then we'll also deal with the idea of authority. When Jesus makes the very clear statements that he does concerning the Sabbath, he is demanding that people respect his authority as the same authority that God the Father has. And that has major implications on what we think and what we believe about Jesus. The reason this is so important is because, yet again, I found myself on my front porch yesterday morning having a conversation with someone who denies the deity of Christ. Friends, do not be, misun- do not be mistaken. There are individuals that will come and they will do everything in their power to convince you that Jesus is not God. And they will even go to the extent to say that Jesus never claimed such a thing. That is a lie. We see that very clearly multiple times. We see it throughout the entire book of John when he says, I am, in those statements he is claiming divinity. The same way that in uh, Exodus chapter 3, the Lord says, go and tell them I am. He is claiming the divine name. And secondly, he claims divine authority. So this morning, I'd like to deal with that. And so the sermon in a sentence this morning is that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. This is crucial for our understanding not only of how we are to conduct ourselves on the Sabbath, but it's also crucial in our understanding of who Jesus is. And so if you would, uh, John chapter 5 verse 1 is where we will be this morning. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word, our only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. John chapter 5 starting in verse 1 says this, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir... 
I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your mat and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a great crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had, been, who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Notice verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, we thank you that there is, no, um, there is no way around. Lord, as we come to the Scriptures and we study it, Lord, very clearly, uh, the Lord Jesus' divinity is clearly displayed, Lord, not only knowing that from the clear pictures of Scripture, but, Lord, we know that apart from one coming who is truly God and truly man, Lord, we would have no one to atone for our sin. And so as we come this morning, Lord, may our eyes be fixed on Christ, but, Lord, may they also, um, may they also by your Spirit, Lord, may the saint um, look into their own lives. Lord, may they mortify the flesh and vivify the Spirit, give life to those things, Lord. And so I, I plead with you this morning, Lord, by your grace, would you uh, encourage the saint this morning? And if there be any here who do not know you, Lord, I plead, would you convict them by the authority of your word? Would you make it clear their desperate need for Christ, Lord, for he is the only way that we can have rest in this life and in the life to come. It is in the name of Jesus and through his precious blood we pray. Amen. So just as a way of recap before we dive into the remainder of this passage, um, we, we spoke last week about the invalid. The invalid was just that, an invalid for 38 years. Um, once again, I can't even begin to fathom what it would be like to be crippled to such a degree that you can't carry yourself to a pool for 38 years years. The deep depression, the major pains that would be associated with that, frankly, the abandonment that went along with it as well. Um, this particular man was in desperate need and Jesus arrives on the scene to meet that need. And really abundantly more than even this man could have fathomed, he was hoping that someone would come and throw him into the pool that he might be healed. But that's not at all what takes place. Instead, Jesus arrives and he gives a clear command, get up, take up your bed and walk. And we see just in that statement before we dive into the next, the clear authority of Christ for him to look at a man who is withered completely and totally, no strength about him. And the Lord Jesus give him a command, get up, take up your mat and walk. We see Jesus demonstrate his authority over a fallen and frail and feeble body that at his command, muscles would strengthen. Uh, I can imagine even perhaps this man was paralyzed that the that things that which science today cannot do, he in his simple command is able to knit back together the spine. I mean, the incredible authority of the Lord Jesus. But the issue is his authority is actually not most expressed in the healing of this particular man. His true authority is expressed in the way that he deals with the Sabbath. Now, I think it's very important for us to understand before we go a bit further on what it is that the, what, what is the Sabbath. Um, Christians especially kind of have a skewed version of the Sabbath pretty, pretty frequently, um, primarily because they don't think the Sabbath applies to them. 
They think the Sabbath is something we're done away with. It's not something that we really have to walk in. Um, and, and, and we see that in a couple of ways. But, but really, before we get there, I'd like to hi- highlight three particular things that we know about the Sabbath. First and foremost, the Sabbath is a creation ordinance. If you look in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, in chapter 2, the very beginning of chapter 2, you'll notice that, Jesus, that the Lord sets aside the seventh day as a day of rest. Now, I want you to consider this just for a minute because for um, the past six days, the heavens have been singing. God has been calling things into motion, not in, in, in the least draining him of his power and authority. And yet, even amidst that, he still sets aside the seventh day as a day of rest. Friends, the Lord did not need to rest. He is omnipotent. There is nothing that drains his power. When he created absolutely everything that we see today, not only did he create those things, but even today he is upholding them by the word of his power. Friends, his power is not drained. It is not tapped. It is not deterred even the smallest bit. There was no need for him to rest. Why then did he do it? He did it as a gift. This is what probably the number one thing we miss about the Sabbath is that it is first and foremost a gift from the Lord. Friends, the number one thing I look forward to every week is gathering. I, I, the greatest joy is gathering with the saints of God. And, I, and the reason that we can bless the Lord for that is because he had set that into motion all the way back into creation pre-fall. It is called a creation ordinance because it was always intended to be. The people were to rest and to gather to celebrate the Lord, to fixate on his work and his labor that we can see not only as we look outside and as we experience general revelation, all the things that God has done, that we can celebrate those things. But for the Christian, even more so, we look back not to the day of of, of rest is look how God created, but instead we look back and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. We celebrate the finished work of the Lord. Now, not only is it a creation ordinance, it is also in the moral law. That's what we find in Exodus chapter 20. We call it the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, it's very clear that we are called to set aside the, uh, the Sabbath as a day holy unto the Lord. We're to rest in those things. If you have children that have been going through the catechism that we've been doing, they've memorized the Ten Commandments so they can fixate their their focus on those things. And the Sabbath is something that we are meant to celebrate. Not only that, but it is a part of the holiness code. In Leviticus chapter 23, he's giving these commands to the priest to demonstrate holiness in their day-to-day life. And he sets aside the Sabbath for the purpose of them revealing their holiness, that they are setting themselves apart unto the Lord. Now, the reason I point out all three of those is because I want you to see the seriousness in which God takes the Sabbath. All three things... The creation ordinances, other things that are mentioned in that are things like um, marriage or work. He has the Sabbath built into a creation ordinance. It is intended for his people. Not only that, but it's a part of the Ten Commandments that are vitally important. Not only are they vitally important, they're so very important that very likely what we find in in God giving the Ten Commandments is not him writing them down, but him speaking them over the people of Israel. Even to the point where when God stops speaking, and the, the people are mortified because they'd heard the voice of the Lord, and they say, we need a mediator, we need one to stand in the gap because his voice shatters cedars. It's crushing and not only that, in the holiness code, I want you to see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, there's very clear indications of the importance of the Sabbath day. Now, let me tell you the major issue with this. When God places great emphasis on something like the Sabbath, man is very, very likely to corrupt it. I mean, genuinely, I would like for you to consider just a couple of things. Let's go back to the creation ordinances real quickly. Work. Friends, there's nothing worse than watching men be lazy, and yet our world runs rampant with it. 
or I would even take it to perhaps the most clear illustration, and that would be of marriage. Marriage began to deter, as it seems, immediately after the fall as sin enters in. But friends, today uh, we assault marriage in more ways than one. We assault marriage by our infidelity, both in in our physical infidelity, but also in our emotional or intellectual infidelity. Uh, Marriage is constantly under assault, and it is that good and perfect thing that the Lord gave to his church to be a representation of the gospel. In the exact same way, we find the Sabbath in that camp. It is something good. It is a gift, and we have so quickly corrupted it. And I'd like to point out to you this particular passage. And the reason I must give you essentially a biblical theology of this is because we don't understand the magnitude of this particular passage apart from it. The Sabbath is something that God alone is Lord of. It is a gift that he gives to his people that they might stop and celebrate the finished work of Christ, that they might stop and celebrate and fix their eyes on the work of the Lord. The reason this is so important is because every other day of the week, our attentions and affections are drawn somewhere else. The reason it's crucial to gather with other believers is because that we might stir one another up to good works, to love the Lord together. And so as we come and consider that this is a gift that the Lord's given, I would like for you to see how these particular people have corrupted it and also maybe place us on guard that we not do the same thing. So let's look at the story again. Notice verse 9 and then we'll continue from there. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews, I want to stop right there real quickly. This is not making reference to the mass of Jews, but instead it's making reference to to the Pharisees, scribes, the Sanhedrin, people in authority. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And I want to stop right there because there's a couple of things that I think are incredibly important. First and foremost, I want you to notice that what you find here in these Pharisees is not someone who is making an inquisition. They're not questioning him and asking him, are you acting in accordance with the law? Instead, they are immediately jumping to accusation. They're immediately looking at him and assuming the worst possible circumstance. And I'm just going to tell you, friends, legalism robs of grace. And that's exactly what we see here. You see very clearly that what's taking place here is these people who are in authority, these people in leadership are looking looking at this man who has to, has to look like a beggar. God restored his body. It is not very likely that he immediately gave him new clothes. He would have looked impoverished. He would have looked poor. He would have looked worn down still. Although his body be healed, he still bore the marks of an invalid. He hadn't made it home yet. He perhaps had not been able to grab a change of clothes. And so the Judea, these people who are in authority look at this man and assume the worst possible circumstance. And they say, it is not lawful for you to do this. Immediately they go into accusation. And and, and let me just go ahead and say this before we jump in and and question whether it was lawful for him to do this or not. Um, I want you to understand that legalism knows um, really nothing of grace. And I want to point this out in two ways. First of all, this is not about holiness. This is not about holiness. And here's why. Holiness is that which the saint pursues after conversion. There is no excuse for one who has been bought by the finished work of Christ that has tasted and seen the goodness of God to not pursue holiness each and every day. Absolutely no excuse. Frankly, if that is the case, I would argue that you are not converted at all. However, the individual who pursues a man-made righteousness that they desire to be, made, to be made righteous before God by their own deeds, by their own works, that is what we call legalism. It is the desire to make yourself appealing to God. And that is what exactly is happening in this day with these Jewish individuals. They are doing everything they can to make themselves appear righteous before the Lord. And they've tasted something in it that's very unique. They've tasted authority. 
Because they're so smart, they're so much more intelligent than the rest of us that they study the scriptures day in and day out and they have implemented not just one or two various um, understandings of work, but they have implemented 39. They have taken the word work and they have essentially broken it out into 39 different categories. And so when they look at this man, instead of assuming that perhaps he is carrying this mat in a way that is indeed lawful, they they immediately assume that he is in sin and rebellion against God. I want to point this out to you. I think this is a really interesting statement. This is what uh, Calvin had to say in regard to this. He says, anything that is against God's word deserves to be condemned without hesitation. And that is true. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we should assume things about black and white circumstances. The way I think about this is um, there will be individuals who, um, especially in my generation, who really enjoy living together before they're married. There is no question of whether or not that is sin. It is sin. It's very clear there should not be, frankly, at bare minimum, you can have there should not be even the appearance of evil among you, but let's not pretend like there's not more evil there being done. It's very clear sin. There's not up for negotiation at all. But in this particular circumstance, we don't look at it and say immediately we sh- it should be condemned without hesitation. But notice what he says further. It says, but since we often make mistakes here, we should first of all make calm and humble inquiries so that we can make sound and sober judgment. The Jews who were, who, were preju- who were prejudicing through their evil outlook had no patience to make inquiries and they closed the door to moderation and fair judgments. However, if they had allowed themselves to know the facts, not only would their reason for taking offense be removed, but they would have made more progress toward their great advantage in knowing the gospel. Consider for a minute, when we see someone who is in who, who is in somewhat of apparent sin, not black and white, but perhaps you, you're led to believe that. Shouldn't we start with grace? Shouldn't we start with grace? Shouldn't we see the individual who perhaps, perhaps in their infancy, perhaps they are infants and not wolves. Perhaps as we look at them, we should assume that, that they don't know. I, my desire is to inquire so that perhaps I can see whether they, they're actually walking in accordance with God's law. Our immediate knee-jerk reaction to these circumstances should always be grace. Always be grace. Legalism robs grace. It robs grace blind. It takes it completely and totally. That there is no means even left in these individuals to display grace because they have, find, they have found more joy in binding those who are under them to a law that is not God's. They love that they have authority. They love that they've been placed in high esteem. And since that's the case, their favorite thing to do is bind those lower. And I would warn you, perhaps, before you would think to yourself, we would never do such a thing. I've done this. There are things that I look at in individuals' life, particularly men, because I'm most critical of men. And there are little bitty things, perhaps southern gentleman things, and should I not see that displayed in an individual's life, I almost, almost instantly assume that they are unregenerate. That's a foolish thing. It's foolish altogether, and I hold them to these standards of which God has not necessarily set. If you didn't open the door for your wife, it's okay. It doesn't mean that you're lost. And, and I know that seems foolish and, and maybe minor, but I want you to think about the, the, the bigger things. Perhaps there are um, what we call discussional issues that take place in the church. They are not dogma, meaning they're not about the deity of Christ, the resurrection from the dead, or the Trinity, but they are about some secondary, not even secondary, but, but third-tier issue. It means I don't look at my brother who is a faithful Presbyterian who baptizes their children and assume that they are unbelievers. I think they have a faulty misunderstanding of the text, but that's all right. We can still be friends. We can still celebrate Christ together. 
I'm telling you, my friends, I would urge you to watch yourself very closely on what extra you apply to individuals to test if they are regenerate. We always lead with grace. We watch as Christ leads with grace. Do not forget that the reason this man, this invalid was placed there was very likely because of a sin that he had committed. What did Jesus display? Grace. And so legalism has completely and totally robbed these Pharisees of grace. And now let's ask the question before we jump down their throat too much. It says, it is the Sabbath. So they immediately make this accusation. And it says, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. They bring a charge against him, ultimately accusing him of sin. There's two things I'd like to point out to you here. First and foremost, Jesus had just told this man to get up, take up his mat and walk. So here's the question, just a simple question that we have to ask ourselves. Would Jesus tell this man to do something that is sinful? The answer is a resounding no. Not in any way, shape, form, or fashion. The Lord does not in any way bring us to sin. Certainly he does not command it. And so as he looks at this man, he tells him to get up, take up his bed, and walk. We must consider first that Jesus is the one who has issued this command. And since he is Lord of the Sabbath, he does what he wants on the Sabbath. And should he give a command on the Sabbath, then we would be wise to be obedient to it. But secondly, let's consider the Old Testament and ask the question, was it right, was it right for the Jewish people to stop him? Was it right for the Jewish people to stop him? So I'd like to turn your attention to Jeremiah chapter 17. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it says this in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives. And do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work. But keep the Sabbath day holy as I commanded your fathers. If we looked at this passage blind, with no revelation past it, we would assume that the Jews were absolutely correct in stopping him. Look, he, he's carrying something. The issue is the Sabbath is more about you stopping and resting in the Lord than it is about you actually picking up something. Secondly, the, for, the being forbidden to take up your mat is in regard to work. It's in regard to actual labor of which you will be paid for, that you will make a wage. And so essentially what we have here is them looking past the clear commandment of the law and developing it a bit further so that they can continue to bind people, so that they can continue looking at individuals and saying, you must walk as we walk, or, then, or you are lost altogether, or you are very clearly in sin. And so does it make sense that they stopped him? I think yes. It makes sense that they stopped him, perhaps, but, but, but not in an accusatory way, but if they would have stopped him in a way of grace and of looking at them and saying, um, hey, you're carrying a load on the Sabbath. Can you explain this to us that we might, we might come to an understanding? I think they would have been right to do so. But should they have stopped and made that inquiry, then we would see very clear that he would have had the opportunity to testify to the goodness that God had just demonstrated in his life by healing him. Now let's go a little bit further. So is it lawful? The answer is yes, it is lawful on two accounts. First and foremost, on the account of the Old Testament, it is lawful in regard to the scriptures. However, it is not lawful in regard to the pharisaical comments on the Sabbath. So it's not God's law they're breaking, it's the Pharisees' law that is being broken. Notice verse 11 as we continue. It says, but he, but he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. So let's explain real quickly what just took place. This man who was an invalid just looked at these Pharisees and said, The man that healed me. What would be your next response should you be a Pharisee in this particular circumstance? Very likely it would be, can you please tell me about the man who healed you? 
I mean, that, I mean, how could that not be our response? Praise the Lord, you're, you're healed. What, what miraculous thing God has done in your life? That should be the immediate response to something like this. But instead, we find that, once again, legalism has robbed completely and totally of grace. And frankly, it's robbed them of joy. Notice what it says. He says, it goes on in verse 11. It says, take up your bed and walk. In verse 12, it says, they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Wouldn't the better question be, who is it that healed you? I mean, if there was anything that would, that would provoke me in that statement, it wouldn't be, is there any, who, who's the man who told you to take up your bed and walk? Instead, it would be, who is it that healed you? Who is the individual who was able to look at an invalid and heal him and make him well? I want you to see this, that legalism has robbed these men of seeing. They have robbed them of seeing altogether. D.A. Carson wrote an incredible statement on this. It says, The Jews hear of the wonderful healing and of the formal breach of their code and are interested only in the latter. The only thing that they are concerned with is the fact that someone has broken their code. Someone has broken the command that they've given. And so they become incredibly frustrated. And then he goes on to say this. He says, they think they see what is important. But in religious matters, there are none so blind as those who are always certain that they see. That struck me. There are none so blind than those who are always certain that they see. These Pharisees have spent more time in the law than this invalid by and far. Frankly, they'd spent more time in the scriptures than any of us have. And they think they see perfectly. And in their statement, we see very clearly that they don't. They've lost grace. They've lost celebrating the work of the Lord. And the only thing they can concern themselves with is the law. The issue is not only have they missed the purpose of grace, but they've missed the purpose of the law. Friends, the, the major point, the major thing that man is so strong in doing is committing what we call iniquity. It is taking the good things that the Lord God has given us and twisting them and making them wicked. These men have made the law an idol. They have looked to it and said, I will find my righteousness there and nowhere else. When the intended purpose of the law was for you to look in the mirror of it and it to gladly display that you are wicked beyond measure, that you can never meet the righteous requirements, and it's to point you to one that would be able to heal. Just in this statement, we see the flipping of the law. Should they have understood it rightly, they would have looked and they would have seen that in the law, they see that they are completely and totally incapable and they would have gladly, gladly heard of the one who is able to heal. Perhaps they would have considered for just a minute that this one who is able to heal is the Messiah, the one who has actually come to not only heal us physically, but to, but to grant us freedom from sin. Should they understand the Old Testament properly, that would be their eye, where their eyes were fixed. And so they asked him, who is the man who said to you take up your bed and walk. What an atrocious place to be where we no longer see the riches of God's grace, where we no longer see the wealth of his wisdom because we are so fixated on something that we have a fascination with. And so we see very clearly the, the robbery that legalism has with grace. But then let's continue on a little bit further. In verse 13, it says this, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. In verse 14, it goes on to say, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. We discussed that last week. And in verse 15, you see immediately this take place in this man. And I want to consider for just a minute here because it goes back to that idea of authority. This Pharisee is looking at this man and saying, you're breaking the law. When he had just had one who was able to heal, look at him and tell him to get up, take up his mat and walk. Just on basis of authority, who in that moment has more authority? The one who's able to heal you, right? 
I mean, every single time. The one who's able to come in, he's able to heal the body, certainly very clearly may have the authority over the Sabbath. And should he give you a command, you would bow to it very gladly. And I'm convinced that that's exactly what you see in this man. He experiences the healing of God and in experiencing that healing, he says he must be Lord. He must have an authority that's far greater and deeper than the Pharisees. For the Pharisees have done nothing for me. They didn't stand by me and help me into the water. What we find is that the Pharisees were altogether too busy uh, caring about the law instead of actually being gracious the way that God had commanded them to be. And so you see Jesus walk in, he heals this man, and gladly this invalid now bows to his authority. And then he goes in verse 15, he says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. In verse 16 it says this, And this was why the Jews were persecuting him, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until Now and I am working. I want you to hear the simple defense that Jesus gives. The simple defense that Jesus gives is my father is working. My father. In this claim, he is saying that I am actually, I am actually his true monogenes. I am his son. We find the Pharisees making reference to our father, but not like this, not in a personal manner. When Jesus says, my father is working until now and I am working, he gives the defense to his own case. And his defense is not, no, I didn't do that. His defense is saying, yes, I did that and I have absolute authority to do that. How dare you question my authority? My father is working, and if my father is working, I will continue to work. I am glad to do good on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man. May I say this really quickly? The Sabbath was made for us to gather to celebrate the work of Christ. And should anyone stifle that by adding extra laws, they are actually robbing not just God, but they are robbing his saints. They are robbing his saints of something good. And so he says, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. Now, this is the single most inflammatory statement that Jesus has made up until this point. And here's why. John, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us verse 18 18 to clarify exactly what's taking place when Jesus makes this statement. It says this, And this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Now, the first thing I'd like to point out is that before the comma, you notice at the very end of that verse, he is making these references from the perspective of the Jews. I want you to hear the audacity. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, the Jews had in themselves such legalism. They had such authority. They were power mad that they would look at the one who was able to heal, the one who has demonstrated his authority multiple times. We find Nicodemus saying, we know that you're from God. We find the Samaritan woman at the well saying that this is indeed the Messiah. Not only the Samaritan at the well, but also many others in Samaria that believed, saying this is clearly the Lord. He's demonstrating that by not only his work, but his word. And now we find the Pharisees looking at him and saying that he was breaking the Sabbath, that he was taking that which he gave to man and telling telling him that he was breaking it. They were missing the point altogether. And here you see legalism again flipped on its head. We see very clearly that they are attempting to place things on Christ, place things on God's law that were never intended to be there. And it's not his law they're breaking. It's theirs. It's theirs. They have taken the good thing that God has given and they have bound his people with it. And not only did we see that he was, that in their perspective, he was breaking the Sabbath, but this is the reason that they continued to, to persecute him so heavenly, heavily. But he was even called, he was even calling God his own father. Friends, going back to the conversation we had just briefly at the very beginning of this, 
this miracle, this thing that Jesus did was not just to heal an invalid. Certainly it was to demonstrate his authority over those that are sick and perishing. But more than that, it was to demonstrate his authority over the Sabbath. It was in this statement that he would make himself equal with God. Do not be mistaken. Here we see the absolute condemnation of the Arian doctrine that Jesus is subordinate to God. He is co-equal, co-powerful, co-eternal. He has and possesses all the rights of deity, of true deity. He is a member of the Trinity, and he is not subordinate to him in power, in authority, or in any other manner. Yes, we see that in the, that in the uh, economy of it, yes, we see him submit himself to the authority of the Father, but in no way on the, on the uh, ontological nature is he lower than the Father. He makes himself equal. He is claiming deity. Do not be fooled. It is not as though Jesus never made clear who he was. He did. Not only do we see them demonstrate his authority and power in the healing of the invalid, but we see him take the Sabbath of which God says is his and say it's mine to do with what I choose. That is a clear claim. Should it not be a clear claim, then what you would have is a man walking up to the Sabbath that belongs to the Lord and the Lord alone and saying it's mine. Friends, God would smite such a one. Here we see very clearly that the Lord Jesus, he is making abundantly clear that he is the true God, true man, co-equal, co-powerful, and co-eternal. He is divine, and he has all the rights of divinity. And should he say, get up, take up your mat, and walk, we would do well to gladly obey. For he is the true and better authority. And so my encouragement for you this morning is two things. First, I would like to go back to the conversation of legalism and us placing weight on individuals that should not be there. We live in a a, a society, and particularly in the Bible Belt, where legalism is more prevalent than the gospel. I mean, wildly more prevalent. We are more concerned with the way individuals act. We're more concerned that they be moral individuals than than we are concerned with them being gospel individuals. Friends, I'm telling you, there are many, many individuals who, if any of us looked at the Pharisees today, we would assume them to be righteous altogether because they conducted themselves in a manner that seems to be worthy of the gospel, but instead what you find is a perversion of it. Do not be mistaken, my friends. There are many, many individuals around you who look like they have it all together, who walk in in seeming to be in accordance with the moral law, but they have neglected the grace of God altogether. Friends, heaven has no room for such a one. Heaven has no room for the individual who says, I am good enough. Heaven only has room for the individual more like the invalid who says, I am wicked, I am frail, I am feeble, and I must cast myself on another. It is only there that salvation can be had. No righteousness can do that. Secondly, I would encourage us to be wise in the way that we act toward new believers. Can you consider this man for just a moment? He had just experienced the power of God into salvation. Perhaps he had not spent much time in the scriptures at all. Perhaps he was ignorant altogether. Our knee-jerk reaction should not be to condemn him. Our knee-jerk reaction should be to teach him. Our knee-jerk reaction should always be to train them up into the fullness of the measure of the stature of Christ. Should these Pharisees have had a deep understanding of the Lord, that would have been their first reaction. They would have asked, who is it that healed you? And they would run to him and celebrate that perhaps the Messiah has come. And they would have gladly trained this young man up in the way that he should go. We should always respond in grace, slow, slow, slow to condemn, or we may be condemned by our own judgments. Lastly, Friends, if Christ is Lord of the Sabbath, then he is Lord of all. 
We saw very clearly that the law is a creation ordinance, that it's in the moral law, the Ten Commandments, and lastly, that it's in the Levitical Code. Friends, these are things that God claimed for himself and he gives as a gift to his church. Anyone who would claim to say that he has authority over it is either, is either a heretic worthy of the worst condemnation possible, or he is God. Listen to no man who would humor you with he was a great prophet. No one. He has not left that option open to us to borrow from C.S. Lewis. He is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. The individual that says, I have absolute possession of the Sabbath, it is mine, does not leave us open to assuming that he is a prophet, that he is wise, or that he is a great man. He is a heretic, or he is Lord. My friends, I would encourage you that when you have individuals that would stand on your front porch and offer you a gospelless gospel, one that has no true God, true man, to pay the sin debt of the world, perhaps you would challenge them with that, and perhaps you're challenged with that this morning. Friends, Jesus is God, and he deserves our full submission, or he deserves nothing at all.